Welcome to the New Age Sage podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Cody Ryle. He is a U.S. Navy trained psychiatrist and neurotechnology expert. We talk about the potential of AI to cure your mental health, the benefits of that, and of course, some of the potential negative effects of having AI interfere with our consciousness. I hope you love today's episode. Please leave a review if you did. My team and I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Enjoy. Cody, uh, we're going to start with the concept of hacking our minds, right? I think we live in an era where it's a point of em- emphasis to talk about biohacking and how to choose certain foods or substances or different things to get into a cognitive state where you feel everything's good. What does that mean? How can someone hack their own mind with external frequencies or different gadgets or foods? How, how is that possible? I've been tapping into the word human optimization a little bit more than biohacking. I think that understanding our bodies and our minds through data is incredibly powerful. And now that we have AI and machine learning algorithms to take a look at that in large data sets and tell us insights that we've never seen before, I think that's incredibly valuable information to alter our behavior, know what foods to eat, how much sleep we should be getting, uh, how your focus is during the day. That's what I've been talking a lot about on YouTube is these devices that track data from the body and allow you to have those insights that allow you to make informed decisions, which I think gives people more confidence. It's given me more confidence when I've worked with these devices to do things like as simple as adding 30 minutes to my sleep on the front end of the night because I could see that my REM sleep wasn't good from some of these devices that I was uh, using. And then you can really go off the deep end with that with some things that are coming along in the next five to 10 years where for example, some of these neuroimaging technologies are pretty pretty wild. Like, I think that we're going to be able to see dreams projected on a video screen within 10 years or so. People are already doing it with big MRI machines. Some of the tech is getting smaller and smaller miniaturized where we'd actually would be able to do things like that as well. Where do you, where else do you see this going? Like, right, give me a picture of like where the tech is right now. Like, for example, like what can you actually quantify? Like what can you sit down and quantify and say, I'm getting feedback on this thing and this feedback is helping me improve in these ways. Give me some like insight into that and then lead into where you think it's going to go like full on sci-fi movie level in like 10 years. Yeah. Great question. I mean, most people are familiar with like the aura ring or whoop, and these are measuring heart rate variability, uh, temperature as well as movement. And that's what I would call peripheral bios, bios signals. So if you think of your finger, right, it's got certain signals that the ring can pick up, but, the best way and or attract sleep. So it's trying to track those finger signals to understand your sleep. Whereas if you had a brainwave device, like I brought one of them with me, like the Muse headband I talk quite a bit about. It's got this soft band and EEG sensors, electroencephalography sensors that are on your skin and can pick up your brainwaves. And as you slip into sleep, those are the first signals to change. So you can more accurately figure out when someone just fell asleep or if they're in REM or if they're in deep non-REM. Those sleep stages are important for understanding how restorative sleep is. And you don't get as good of metrics from from the ring or or the wrist bracelet. So understanding how you're sleeping can do several things. It can provide insights towards when you should go to bed, how long you should be in bed to get full restorative sleep so that you feel energized during the day and at your full peak performance. But we can do other things that really within the last year haven't been able to do before. 
because neuroscience has been somewhat democratized through these devices, like you have to think about how neuroscience experiments were done in the past. They recruit 20 people, they go into some lab at a university, they get their brainwaves analyzed, and then you have a set of 20 that, you know, took weeks to acquire. And then you have, you know, even like five or 10 years ago, not even any machine learning capabilities of looking at that data. It was more visual human inspection and playing with the math and trying to figure out what was coming out of that data. Now we have much larger data sets, like tens of thousands of people wearing these devices at night, machine learning algorithms that are able to identify biosignals from the brain that the human eye or mind can't even pull out of the data just because of how complex they are. And then assimilating that information, we can do things like determine the age of your brain. So Muse has this new metric coming out called brain age, where they can take a look at both uh, your sleep and also your meditation sessions, because it's a neurofeedback meditation device as well, to tell you the age of your brain. And the way that they are able to do that is there are certain signals like uh, alpha frequencies are a certain uh, slower brainwave that you go into when you meditate. But alpha is divided into uh, several different levels of frequency. So the how fast the wave is actually oscillating and where the peak power is actually varies with age. And they've been able to find that through these data sets. So that's an example of where we're at right now mm -hmm. is really using this uh, brainwave data to assess the quality of your sleep, your brain age, how well uh, potentially you're meditating, although that's up to for discussion. Like what does a good meditation session actually look like, like, look like in terms of brainwaves? Improving focus. There's another device coming out this year that I'm very excited about. I think it's going to really change how we look at these technologies in the mainstream. Um, they go by uh, Neurable and they have these headphones coming out that can detect how well you're focusing. So imagine working at your computer and tracking how well you're focusing. And We're all probably going to be terrible. That. Right, exactly. <laughs> and that's one of the demos that they've uh, been showing quite a bit. They were just at uh, Forbes 30 and the 30 and a lot of other uh, big conferences is that the demo, the, the person is on the computer working and then a notification comes up on their phone. They check the notification and you can see their brainwaves just go haywire. And it again, it's machine learning algorithms that are putting together that information because it's not as simple as, oh, your beta increased and your alpha went down. It, it like the signals are complex. Yeah, but I think it's powerful getting there. perspective because you often hear in researching, you know, so have my issues with ADHD, like the, the severity of task switching, right? Like working on a article, working on an email or being in a meeting and then everyone does it switching to, you know, New York times or looking at this new movie that came out's trailer. You feel it in your body. Like, oh, this is affecting my focus. But I think putting the data to it, seeing like, Oh shit, like my brain really just got fucked by, by doing that. Yeah. will make big differences. Do you get know what I'm saying? I think when we have that feedback, it's going to hit us more of being like, wow, this is really not okay. This is really affecting me at a deep level. Yeah. Or, you know, for lack of a better way of going about it, if you had to take medication for focus, you at least could quantify how well it's improving your focus. So there's different techniques of obtaining brain data. The electrical patterns are somewhat difficult because we have our brain and then there's the cerebral spinal fluid around it and then our skull. So what happens to the electrical signals is they get really spread out. 
it becomes a problem when uh, AI is trying to analyze what's going on with that data. Another way of doing it is through an MRI machine where you actually have a large magnet and you send these radio pulses and you can see the blood flow like functional MRI. That's the most accurate for blood flow tracking, but there's another technology called FNIRS where you can shine a red light laser. It'll go through the, the skull and the cerebral spinal fluid scatter and based on the scattering patterns, be able to look at the blood flow of the brain. Now, the reason why I'm bringing that up is that some of the most wild studies right now are doing are being done with the functional MRI machines, the machines that cost like $3 million. That's where you get people that are going in and getting their brains scanned with the fMRI scanner and watching like 40 hours of YouTube videos and then compiling that into a machine learning algorithm, then going into the same scanner, right? And being shown completely new videos and based on the patterns in their brain, projecting what they're seeing. It's the most bizarre thing that you've ever seen. It's like AI compiling this image of what they're showing. So it literally is reading their mind through these blood flow patterns. Do you think we'll be able to telepathically communicate eventually? I think that that is going to be more difficult because... Like sending you a thought, like literally. Like if I had like some, let's say I was, reached like, let's picture 30 years from now, I had, this is me going full sci-fi nerd, nerd right now. And let's say I had some image I concocted of like how a, a date would go with a potential person I'm seeing. And I sent them that image to my mind. Do you see a reality as possible? Well, right now, the data acquisition is a lot easier than sending the data into the brain. Okay. So through these imaging technologies, we can take the data and reassimilate it into an image or text. And, you know, uh, language generating AIs are going to be very helpful with this. But to actually like send a message into someone's brain is a lot more difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, you can send. I, I mean, mean, more so like, like getting the image on like your like on digital device from your brain. Is that is it possible? Like getting like what I think my brain onto a screen. Yes. That's more feasible. Yes. The other part of all this is that when you visualize, the patterns are quite similar to when you see, which is interesting when you think about all this talk about visualization and manifesting your future and, you know, the way that the human brain operates. It's like what we see in front of us and what we imagine have similar brain activation patterns. So I definitely could see a future where there would be people that would be better than others at projecting images on a screen based on their visualizations because it creates patterns within the back of your brain here where visual information is stored called the occipital lobe. When you analyze that with these technologies, you could potentially project them on a screen. Do you think there's any neuroscience backing manifestation? Because right now it's purely like a spiritual, I believe in it, but it's just purely nonsensical spiritual baloney. I believe it. it's like there's no way of quantifying it. Do you, is there any neuroscientific way of explaining manifestation? Because like, even though it's hard to explain metaphysically, it's I mean, easy to explain like metaphysically, people still get results that way. They see something and they accomplish it. Is there any way of neuroscientifically explaining that? Well, I think that, um, yes, there are a lot of facets to neuroscience that I think explain law of attraction as well as manifestation. One of the biggest ones is that there is so much stimulus within this room, within your daily life, that your brain has to filter out a massive amount of it. I mean, the classic example is, you know, I want like a red Dodge Durango, right? And then you start seeing Dodge Durango, red 
Dodge Durango's all over town. That is, you have opened a gateway within your nervous system to be able to see what you wanted to see. It was there all along, but now it's becoming more obvious. So that gateway is called the reticular activation system. And when you open the pathways to the reticular activation system, you start seeing opportunities all around you. Now, I'm a big believer in you have to take massive action for law of attraction to work, for manifestation to work. But just seeing the opportunities alone, I think, is a huge part of law of attraction, don't you think? Oh, for sure. You know, I'm I'm against a movement where it's just like um, speaking into existence, just like imagining it. I don't agree with that. You know, for me, it's like some level of of co-creation. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I think the other part of that, too, is as you read books and spend time listening to people that have achieved what you want to achieve, you start speaking their language, your energetic frequency or whatever this is gets on the same level and you're actually able to relate to those people as well. So you learn through osmosis and then when you meet people that have achieved what you want to achieve, you get along. So there's information exchange there. So I think that's another facet of uh, law of attraction and manifestation is that you get, you basically get the resources that you need to make your dreams come true, right? And of course, just defining the goal in the first place is extremely important. Your our brains are just these synthesis connection making machines that are always going and trying to put things together. That's just how humans are wired. You've got the creativity part, you know, creatively trying to problem solve to get to your goal, but then also just being aware of the resources that you need to put the pieces together to make things happen. Yeah. I mean, I think from, if you really want to go superficial neuroscience baseline level, I think everything that they do talk about in law of attraction is actually quite explainable in scientific terms in that way. Now, is the universe actually responding to our thoughts? I think that's the most difficult one to prove is the, and that's one that I've been thinking about a lot lately is, is the universe plastic? Will it actually respond to human thought? Kind of a human biocentric viewpoint, you know? Yeah. I think that's the most difficult one. To, well, I've, to there's prove. no way of proving it, but what I, my brain comes to is that like, whatever thoughts you have create a certain frequency in your body, right? If you're thinking angry, pessimistic victim thoughts, you're going to put out a frequency of that. Like when you to validate that, when someone walks in a room that's negative, you feel it. We all feel it. We see it and we feel it in our bodies. There's some kind of frequency, right? So like the way I see it is that like, okay, if my thoughts are mostly that of like positive, um, loving, peaceful thoughts, then that somehow my energy will give that. And then whatever I attract in some level will be of that frequency, right? Like mm-hmm. like attracts like. So I think positive, think loving, I'll attract positive loving people. That's how I kind of quantify it, which is why I'm super militant in the way I think. And, and this yes. moves on to my next question is that the best book I read on, on on neuroscience was actually written by a Google engineer who just wrote about how the brain's how the brain is like a some machine and learning how to the inputs and outputs. So in your mindset, in your cultivation of happiness in your brain, how has it been sort of an engineering? Like how do we engineer our is it possible to engineer our brains in a way to be happy? I think happy is a loaded term, right? Yeah. There are other or to not be like to not go crazy maybe to, to like not feel like be you're fulfilled in, yeah. be be centered yeah. be um, feeling like you have value yeah I think it's important to make those distinctions right because happiness is fleeting but a lot of these other attributes are something that you build up over time and depend on what stressors you're exposed to in the environment and what I've 
found very interesting about neuroscience is that um, you know the latest wave of understanding of how our brains work is called the connectome. So you have all these different parts in your brain that are connected to each other and based on how they're communicating represents different states of mind. Here's the how here's how the connectome looks when we have internal thoughts and we're just thinking about ourselves all the time. How here's how the connectome looks when we're paying attention to what our outside environment looks. And it shifts. It shifts in each individual person depending on what you're doing in that moment. So people that are depressed um, and thinking about themselves all the time, stuck in their inner monologue, get stuck in a certain circuitry as opposed to people that are more centered and in the present moment and enjoying themselves. So uh, these pathways can become uh, thicker. You know, the connections become thicker if you get stuck in certain pathways. And But there is some neuroplasticity that can happen as well. Joe Dispenza talks about that a lot, right? It's like you can uh, shift your energy, shift your brain into different states of being. Now, for some people, it's easier than others. And that depends on a lot of different factors. Probably some biological genetic factors there, but also a lot of epigenetic factors. Were, were your parents screaming at each other when you were a child? Were, was it a chaotic home? You know, how, What is your relationship with your parents? These are all going to factor into how well, your brain is able to shift and to adapt to adult life and the stressors that we come into. You previously mentioned the reticular activating system. That's something I've always thought about of how you can go into. What, what I think is a useful thing to know for people in this space. What is the reticular activation system? And the way I think about it is how does it pertain to like your thoughts? Because what I see is that like if you learn to focus on a certain pattern of thinking, if you learn to focus on like a very victimhood or, or pessimistic way of thinking, that becomes what you focus on, right? Like if you learn to look for pain, you're going to find pain. If you learn to look for right. love, you're going to find love. So how does that work? How can like, when we have that intention of like, we're focused on only looking for things not going our way, things will actually not go our way. How does that work with the particular activation system? Yeah. There's this routing system in your brainstem called the thalamus that takes in all the sensory information and only lets a certain amount of it through. I don't know if anybody's quantified how much actually gets through, but I imagine it's something like 10% of the information of the stimulus that we take in. So our conscious minds, our neocortex sitting up here gets fed all this information through our thalamus. So the thalamus kind of shapes how you see the world. And it's a two-way communication too. You can kind of train your thalamus to like focus on certain things through the reticular activation system. The, the RAS is sort of a part of that pathway of the thalamus. So a person over time can train themselves to see the world in a different way based on what they're focusing on. How's that, how, how's that, how can one do that, right? Like, let's try and come up with a, with a plan, right? Because there's one thing to say, oh, I can, knowing that's possible, how can we do that? How can we actually train our brains to focus on a different way of perceiving reality? Because I've done it myself. I've gone from being a complete victim and, and seeing how everything's not going my way to focusing on what's right versus wrong mostly. Like, I've, I've done that work, but I've done it from a very, like, just philosophical perspective. Is there a neuroscientific approach to hacking our reticular activating system? I think that it goes towards a way that probably people are aware of, but haven't thought of it in this way, which is if you want to accomplish something, read books about it, uh, start practicing every day to shift your thoughts as well as get reference experiences. So let's say that you are um, trying to get into real estate or something like that. You want to go to conferences. You want to meet people that are doing it. You want to read books about how to do it. 
shift your view about what it is to get into real estate. And that would happen as well as if you were in a spirituality and you went to a meditation retreat and that type of thing as well. So practically, what I recommend is a morning routine can be very helpful. So me, for instance, I'll get up. First thing I do is my brain training with neurofeedback exercises. What neurofeedback does is teach you how to ground yourself as well as understand unpack that let me hear about that what does that mean what does that experience for you what does you training your brain in the morning look like what is, yeah. what is neurofeedback yeah so neurofeedback takes a lot of different forms this is one of the companies that i've been working pretty closely with uh, mendy out of stockholm switzerland and this is using the red light laser that i talked about before where it's actually tracking the blood flow of your frontal lobe so you set your phone up and you're doing this neurofeedback exercise and the better that you concentrate on the screen more this ball goes up. If you lose focus, the ball goes down. So this locks me into sort of focus mode early in the morning. Hmm. And I find that when I do that, it actually activates those attention circuits in my brain. And when I follow it with a meditation session, my meditation sessions usually go better as a result. Hmm. Another thing that I'll do is prime with journaling before. So I'll sit down and um, write out in past tense what I want to achieve. So like by 2025, Cody was on so-and-so podcast, you know, and then I'll imagine that and then I'll take that into my neurofeedback and meditation training. So I'm rewiring my brain in that way. Um, imagining what the future will be like, stabilizing your attention with focus, and then bringing a lot of positive, vibrant, energetic energy in with meditation. And then once all that has been done, revisiting the visualization. Because... Again, I don't have scientific proof for this, but I do believe that meditation opens up a lot of these pathways and makes your brain more isn't, plastic. Isn't there some scientific proof? I took a, I went to Brown. I took a, yeah. the only useful class I took was a neuroscience class on quantifying the effect of mindfulness. So we took like EEGs, uh, fMRIs, all these things to measure someone's brain while meditating. There's a lot of, I can't remember a lot of it, but there's something, great thing with gray matter I remember and different areas of your brain that are associated with like negative states of mind, like decrease or something. Is there, is right. there no, is there no, is there any neuroscientific evidence for the efficacy of meditation? Yeah. You bring up a good point. So there's several things that we see from meditation. The connectivity of your brain is improved. So you have a better ability to shift in and out of different states because you've trained your mind to be able to do that. Uh, another part is um, going back to that one circuit that I alluded to earlier, it's called the default mode network. So if, if I'm sitting here thinking about me, my problems, all the things that are going wrong in my life, that internal monologue that's incessant, that uh, really can get people to not only have anxiety, but chronic depression, meditation teaches you to step outside of that default mode network. Because if you, if you think about it, if you have a meditation object, like your breath, you're paying attention to your breath or, uh, People use uh, different energy centers in their body, and that's what my practice is right now. It's a Kriya Yoga-inspired practice. Um, Joe Dispenza talks about this in his book quite a bit, where you have the energy chain in your central nervous system, activate all the different uh, energetic points that people would traditionally uh, refer to as chakras, and then circulate that energy. You can create these different points of focus within your awareness that hold your attention. So it's amazing what happens when you do with your mind when you're holding your attention on a certain point of light or your breath and how that gets you out of that default mode network into the present moment. And then weird things happen. You get these surges of energy 
Uh, you feel euphoric, at least I do, uh, very centered. Sometimes I feel like there's two magnets on the side of my head where it holds my attention, like sandwiched in a specific point of light. And, and through that, you start to get a feel of what the nature of the universe actually is. It's, it's this living, breathing, and energetic thing. And I think that um, going back to the neuroscience, we see improved connectivity. People are able to shift out of default mode network easier. There's been a lot of debate on the different brain waves that come up with energetic meditation. I think one of the best examples is when Daniel Goleman went to Nepal to put uh, EEG sensors on Nepalese monks, and they saw these huge gamma wave spikes in the brain. Uh, gamma waves are the fastest oscillation that we're aware of in terms of brain waves. So there are some really interesting findings there as well. So the bits and pieces are coming out. It's just that there's a lot of different types of meditation. So there's a lot of debate on what the best biosignals are, what type of meditation My it is. My question would be, if you have an answer to it, like what's the minimum necessary to see change? Like, is it 20 minutes a day? Like, what's like the standard for predicting that there's going to be some positive change? What's like the minimum you have to do to create long lasting change? Is there a minimum? Like, is there a practice you recommend? Uh, well, if, if you're just getting started in meditation, there's a great book called Peak Mind. Uh, Amisha Jha, she's down at University of Miami, just came out with this book last year. And those studies were great because what she showed is that just 12 to 15 minutes of mindfulness training uh, improved the performance of special operations in military. And specifically what they were looking at was resilience to uh, intense training as well as their marksmanship. So these uh, special operations would you know, do their physical tasks and be put through sort of a boot camp scenario. And they'd also be shooting targets uh, with firearms as well. And what they found is that 12 to 15 minutes of mindfulness training improved their ability to, to hit the mark, mm -hmm. uh, which was one of the first times in neuroscience that someone's been able to definitively show that mindfulness training actually will change your performance in a high intensity environment. So if anybody is looking for sort of a practical step-by-step uh, how to for mindfulness. Take a look at uh, Peak Mind. It's a really good book. Have you ever thought about what, like when, when I've meditated, the thing that I focus on that perplexes me, I, I have my own theory as to what it is, but when you reach a state of complete focus in meditation, in that flow, and you realize that you are not you, that you are the observer of your own reality, that there's like, you're not, if you're not your thoughts, what are you? And then like, have you thought about the neuroscientifically? Like what, like who are we in the sense of like, if we're not our thoughts, what are we? Like what's right. actually going on here, right? There's like my own theory of just the spirit and yada, yada. But like, what, what is your conclusion to that? Like what actually goes on and we're witnessing ourselves, but we're not ourselves. I, I think back to some of the great self-help authors like Napoleon Hill, who talked about the brain as this conduit system for the universe. And when I look at neuroscience and the connectome, what I see is the brain achieves these different patterns of resonance and Let's just say the universe is this infinite sea of energy, right? The way that I see it, one of my theories is that the brain configuring it into itself into different figurations is allowing that energy to come through in different ways. So it's a very, very simplistic way of saying our mind is a filtering mechanism that's tapping into some kind of sea of energy that we can't necessarily see, but we can 
communicate with or at least get a sense of when we meditate and we step outside of ourselves and that those different patterns coming up based on what subjective state we're in allows that energy to come through in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still, I still like confused about the exact nature of it because it's like um, in terms of the perception piece. Like I think, are you ever into like quantum physics at all? Is that something you got, you got into? Yeah. Like how in the sense of like, this is just all vibrating energy in a way. Right. But we see it as real. Our brain like encodes it as, as reality in, in some way. Have you ever thought about that kind of or, thing? Or even the mind is creating yeah. what's in front of us. Yeah. yeah, I think it goes both ways. I think that there's a physical reality that our brain is filtering and making sense to us. But there's also some kind of responding mechanism it's like we are creating as we go a little bit and it's somewhere in between i don't think anybody's truly figured that out yet or at least if they claim to it's the most fascinating thing to think about and talk about right yeah i spend too much of my hours wasting in a mindset being like what the fuck's going on here i think that's like the human experience we'll never know i think until until the show's over or not but going back to to the neurofeedback piece i'm just curious as to like I did it. I did it for, for right. people don't know the story. Actually, that previous guest of mine, Lana, she, for about a couple of months, she put this neurofeedback machine in my brain hooked up to me and I was watching some game. I had to focus on this ball. So I was like moving around. I couldn't lose focus. And she was yelling at me, don't, don't think, don't think. And I was just looking at this ball for like hours and end. And I'd notice when I was podcasting, I think the, the level of my podcasting skill isn't dependent on like research or anything. It's how present can I be in the conversation? Like, yes how much I just listen and is allowed to flow versus being insecure and looking at my notes all the time. But what in that, like what is actually going on in my brain that that neurofeedbacking, whatever I was doing, how can that fix my focus? Like what's actually going on, going on in our brains that something like that, some machine to our heads can actually fix, not fix, but ail our ADHD. Going back to the talk about circuitry, right? Your brain will show a certain pattern if you're paying attention to what's in front of you based on, or versus getting distracted and going back into your head, right? With that comes different electrical patterns. So that's what we're trying to do with the neurofeedback device is encourage the electrical patterns that match outwards attention and training your brain to be in that state more often. We can do that with a couple other states. There's relaxation, which is more alpha waves. The uh, paying attention to out in front of you is more beta waves, but it's still very rudimentary. Like if you think about what I was talking about before, these electrical signals get spread out just by the way that our brain is protecting this helmet, which is our skull. This stuff is going to get so much more advanced because instead of getting this third-hand information from these tiny amplitude electrical signals that are coming from our brain, pretty soon we're going to be able to use technology like FNIRs, There's some talk of using ultrasound actually to be able to do this, to more clearly see that circuitry and say, oh, they just went into that attention circuitry. Oh, they just fell out of it. So having that feedback and training ourselves to go in and out of uh, attention or relaxation or sleep, these are different brainwave states, but the brainwaves are more difficult to quantify than the actual circuitry activation. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is, Really, the renaissance of neuroscience is going from this third-hand third hand electrical stimulation measurements to actually seeing how the brain is activating and taking it from there. And that does a lot of things. That provides uh, training for people through neurofeedback exercises that allows us to understand the efficacy of different medications. It allows us to make diagnoses more closely. 
more clearly because the DSM is just a mess right now. You know, yeah. if you look at like what psychiatry is, it's just this hodgepodge of different, this person yeah, said the DSM almost, this one. The DSM almost killed me, literally. Yeah. Just being mis- I don't know if I was misdiagnosed, but the way I was diagnosed and prescribed quite literally almost killed me. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And um, I think one of the reasons I went into psychiatry is that <clears throat> I, saw, I, I felt like so much progress could be made during my lifetime. Like I've got 30 more years of practice as a psychiatrist. And it's just so unfortunate how psychiatry is still in sort of the, the leeches and bloodletting stage of old, you know, when medicine yeah. 200 before, years ago. Before was, we dive into that, I want to uh-huh. tackle one last thing yeah, go. on the AI thing. And I want to definitely go into that much longer. But before we go, there, I want to ask, um, you seem to be very positive and hopeful and enriched and lively about the potential of AI helping us with our minds. I more so veer towards the scared part of like, holy shit, we're letting AI uh, into our consciousness in some way. So I'd love to go into what makes you feel that way. And is there any negative things you perceive? And also where, where mind becomes negative to, to maybe add some nuance is that I think one of the prime things I noticed in human suffering, in my experience, is a need to not suffer, is, is a need to always feel okay. This need to be like in a state of pleasure is to me what caused most of my suffering. When I was a drug addict, there's like a need to be okay. Like I'll take this little pill here to feel this. I'll take this drink here, this Xanax here to feel satiated. And the biggest thing in me feeling mentally healthy is, is being okay with not being mentally healthy, like feeling anxious or stressed or sad and not having it phase me. Just being like, okay, this is the case. I know I can handle this. My fear is with AI and all these things to have this constant little fix of like, I'll put this head thing on, I'll put this thing on to constantly fix me and center me that people will become perpetually more used to not being uncomfortable. That's my own bias. I just want to be curious to your take. Like, um, is it mostly positive for you and, and all this stuff? Is it only positive? Is there some fear in you? Like, take me through that journey in your mind and, and to come into this place with the technology. Well, I love technology. I think it's the most fascinating thing. And I mm-hmm. think is, in order for us to advance as a species, we need to keep developing technology. And honestly, it's just an innate thing that, humans do so i don't think there's anything there's nothing that we can do to stop it at this point so that's kind of my premise number one okay i I would never think that we could forcefully stop the progression of technology it's just something that organically happens from humans and we're going to have to figure out how to uh you know deal with it whether that be through regulations or Mm -hmm. um self-development which I think is probably the most effective way of handling what's coming because these are very powerful technologies. I mean, humans already have powerful technologies. We have the nuclear bomb. You know, how can this be utilized in different ways? It can be utilized for warfare. It can also power an entire city. So that's really what AI is going to be. And that's what uh, AI, interface, AI interfacing with neurology is going to be as well. Uh, one of the my favorite books that came out this last year is called Battle for Your Brain by Nita Farinhani. I had her on my YouTube channel and she was in the news a lot this year because she uh, presented at several really big uh, conferences and yeah, Russell Brand was talking about her. She was, All the conservative uh, sort of um, conspiracy theorists were, were going off on her because she was talking about this very thing where 
these EEG technologies are coming along. FNIRS is developing at a fast rate. Pretty soon, we're going to be able to be able to project our thoughts through AI, text by text. Now, there's debate on whether we can do that through a wearable or it's going to need to be an implant like with Neuralink. But we will be interfacing with AI through our minds pretty soon. How does that not scare you? Because of the input thing. I, I think that the output is a lot easier than the input. So mind control, I think, is a lot more difficult, just the way that the brain is set up. Because it's just, it's a distributed network. You can't just send an electrical signal into one area of your brain and be like, I want a donut, you know? Just <laughs> you can't have uh, input control you very well. It's going to be more of an output data thing at first. So I think we've got a lag, I think we've got a lag period between thought projection and information taking in information rather than thought control. Now, here's where it gets scary, right? If you have an algorithm that can track someone's focus, <clears throat> and this is already happening in China, for example, they have these hard hats with these EEG sensors that can track your focus. So they actually had it uh, with train conductors were wearing these hard hats that could track their focus. So there's a big, there's a lot of debate there about control issues, right? We're already seeing where companies like Amazon are tracking people's you know, work breaks and warehouses. What happens when the company can track your attention? So that's what uh, Nita Farenhani is doing right now with all her great work is she's uh, uh, actually an attorney at a Duke, a professor that is working with these different organizations to create neuro rights initiative before this stuff is coming down the pipeline. It's like each individual has a right to their autonomous neural data. And even some of the companies that I've been working with uh, have implemented this already. Um, Neurosity, this is the Neurosity Crown, one of the EEG devices. Um, actually, this one's kind of fun because... Uh, Grimes and Pretty Lights have been incorporating that one in their live shows with music and projecting uh, brainwave patterns on the screen behind them. But they actually have um, really gone through great lengths to ensure that your brainwave data is stored on the device, only on the device, not uploaded to the cloud. It's encrypted. So there's already steps being taken to protect your neural data. And Beyond that, it's anyone's guess, but uh, it's controversial for sure. Yeah. So I'm going to take you about my, because I, I, I trust you know what you're saying, and, and I don't disagree with disagree anything you're saying. I'm just going to point out my fear to see if we can, because it's probably universal, to see if we can find a solution to not feel free. I think fear is one of the most dev- devastating things to the human psyche. So I'm, more, I'm a little bit of the more conspiratorial type, the way I think, yeah. um, for honesty. Uh, what my brain goes in is that like it's if there's something implanted in our brain that there could be some form of I realized one of the biggest hacks I've learned about my mind is that reality is just what we perceive it to be right it's just a, all our, our powers as human beings in a perspective whatever we perceive to be true is true even if it doesn't match reality so is it possible to have our perceptions hijacked that's where my, my fear goes into like can something inside our brains or something controlling our brains could some negative government, whatever it may be, company, change our perceptions? Is that feasible? It would be. Or am diffi- I just being a crazy person? <laughs> it would be. It would be difficult, but there are some signs that that would be possible. 
Uh, there have been some experiments with electrical stimulation as well as transmagnetic stimulation where you send magnetic pulses to actually, I mean, I think the best example, it's very rudimentary still. All this stuff is very rudimentary, which makes me feel like we still have a lot of time. Mm -hmm. But for instance, if you were to show someone two different pictures in front of them, you could stimulate uh, an area of their brain on the opposite side and they wouldn't see this part of the mm. of the picture so again very rudimentary i don't know how you would do that in real time on someone walking around where there's you know millions of bits of information that are flowing into their brainstem and being interpreted by their neocortex but um it is possible that's something that we're gonna have to grapple with yeah. i personally i never really wanted to go the implantable route i i think that elon and Neuralink are are doing important work I think the main applicable area for that development is people with paraplegia, paraplegics that are paralyzed and can't move and need to move mouse cursors on the screen. That's really the best way to get that direct electrical signal so that you can control a robotic arm or a, or a mouse cursor is implantables. But yeah, having something surgically implanted to me, I probably won't ever do that. And I don't think we need to. I think that the wearables are going to get advanced enough to where we can get a lot of the, <clears throat> but then the it, data. Is from it possible that. for the wearable? So you can take it off. Basically, yeah. is, what but I'm is it saying. possible for when you have the wearable to have something alter perceptions? Hey there. I'm going to give you a break to digest all of this amazing information. And in this break, if you like what you're listening to, please rate and review the podcast. Thank you. Not not very, uh, not with much finesse. Okay. Not with much finesse. Like I said, if you do it. So that's, that's a dystopian idea. Right. Currently, it's a dystopian thing to believe that that's possible. I mean, anything's possible, yeah. but I'm talking about like 500 year span of that being able to be a possible <laughs> right. for me it's just like i think because my brain veers towards the conspiratorial side of things yeah like, sometimes i'm right sometimes i'm being crazy so yeah this is a good one for me to be like all right then fuck it i, then I appreciate the question because I, I know a lot of people watch my videos on youtube and have these thoughts and where i'm at right now is you know like it's going to help you get data on your sleep it's not going to be doing mind control anytime soon so yeah. i don't see, you know i don't see why I see the the work that Nita is doing with the with the neural rights initiative is important to get it established now, but even with the way even with exponential technology, even with Moore's law increasing computer computing power every eighteen months, even with us being on that exponential curve, I don't think we have anything to worry about in the immediate future. Okay, I think it's more about acquiring data, diagnostics, teaching us about our brains. So you're, you're, you're so positive because you're focusing on the potential or the ability to give us feedback that highly enriches our quality of being. Yes. That's why you're hopeful. Yes. And I think one of the people doing that so well right now is Brian Johnson, who we were talking about a little bit earlier. He's the, um, the $2 million a year uh, diet guy. <laughs> entrepreneur but what's interesting is i went out to meet brian in culver city uh probably about six to 12 months before he sort of blew up on social media because 
His other company is Kernel, which is a helmet that does FNIRs, which is the red light laser blood flow pattern tracking helmet. It's like a $100,000 helmet. So I went out there to make a video about it and take part in one of their research studies and talk to him a little bit. And he's all about data. It's like we have all these different diet fads and um, different ways of doing things. And I think one of the take-home points we can get from a lot of the wearables that are coming along right now is, for instance, you have blood glucose monitors, CGMs. One of them is called Levels. If you have a CGM in, you can actually see how your body actually responds to different foods in terms of how your blood sugar is spiking. You can get genetic tests now that look at how long your telomeres are in your chromosomes to see if your health and longevity work has been paying off. And that's going to come along with the neuroscience as well. You can see if the meditation, if your sleep is actually paying off in your brain health. And, you know, Muse is on uh, the frontier of that with their brain age metrics. And I'm sure Kernel, I know Kernel is working on uh, something similar where you're getting your brain age analyzed. So that's where I'm at right now. You know, it's about data analytics, analysis, and understanding. And just like people have diff all these different opinions on what diets work, people have all these different opinions on what mental health care works. You know, should you sit and meditate and journal and take care of it yourself? Or should you go in to see a psychiatrist and be prescribed an SSRI? I think it's different in different cases, mm -hmm. but you don't know for the individual person if you don't have any data. And that's really what it comes down to is like data acquisition is the most important part. My hope is that we have enough data acquisition by the time we get to 500 years from now where mind control actually is possible that we've developed and matured and self-actualized as a species to where hopefully that won't be a problem. As yeah, much I, I as do it believe mind, mind control is possible already, but not in this technological way. I think it's done through hypnosis and some form of like, like TV stuff, you know, yeah. like, like the news, the way the news works. I think there's some form of hypnosis available. And that's why I think more, my focus goes and I just... I spend too much time thinking about like how the mainstream media or different, any movie or anything like alters your perceptions to believe certain things in, in life. That's what a lot of focus on is how that's possible. That's why I'm concerned about, okay, what if tech gets stronger? They're doing it through a fucking TV show. How can they do with this? But what you're saying for me is like, okay, it's not, it doesn't seem too possible. Well, it's such a broad topic. It's yeah, like, sure. can you make someone more receptive to information by stimulating part of their brain? And the yeah. answer to that is yes, you actually can. Yeah. So, if you're talking about like, I'm going to press this button and you're going to think about pizza, maybe that's not possible right now. But could I gently stimulate your brain with magnetic pulses to make you more receptive to a TV advertisement? That's probably actually possible right now. And I believe there's been some experiments done on it. Or like stimulating something in the brain that releases fear. Yes. Man, you really do go down the conspiratorial <laughs> fear-based. But yeah, I mean, if you had a direct access to someone's amygdala, you probably could stimulate it and get some fear response. But I can tell you that's probably a lot more difficult than actually, you know, showing them something that was scary visually. Yeah, I know yeah, for sure. Um, let's, let's now shift a little bit into the psychiatry side of things, because that's something I'm super fascinated in. I'd love to hear your take as a psychiatrist. Like, where, where do you lie? It's a broad question. Where do you lie in the psychiatric spectrum? Like, are you someone who believes or, or adamant on like always medicate, always prescribe medication? Are you more so about, okay, traumatic history, yada, yada? Like, wh where do you lie on the psychiatric plane? And more, probably more pertinent, what do you see in the current psychiatric field that's causing more harm than benefit? 
Yeah, I think that almost anyone can improve without medication. I think that if they're highly motivated and can learn new skills like meditation or journaling, and then also work with the therapist to explore different things that are bothering them can be very helpful. Um, trauma creates this energy within the nervous system that manifests as anxiety and sleep problems and that type of thing. So if you have some kind of moral injury, like you did something in the past that you're not very proud about and it affects your self-image, someone did something to you, uh, or you have a fear that's uh, constantly triggering you, there's a lot of work there in therapy that can be done to improve things. The problem is and I think that this is a larger societal view is that our nine to five urban environments, the way that we've designed human society right now is very anxiety provoking. Brian Johnson actually talks quite a bit about this is like, because we don't have any measurement devices for the brain, we don't know, we don't understand, we've never had the scaffolding to design our cities, our work life, our lifestyles that are actually beneficial to our brains. And because today's world is so complicated with having to earn a living, take care of kids, commute back and forth to work, there's so much there to activate the nervous system that people have a very hard time dealing with it, especially if they're predisposed to an anxiety disorder. So unfortunately, when you have someone that has kids that needs to pay the bills every month, that um, has this anxiety disorder that's has causing trauma. them- has trauma that's causing them not to perform at their job. I mean, some companies are coming around, but most work environments, yeah, they'll let you take a couple of days off here and there for your mental health, but they're not going to completely change your work schedule. They're not going to say, okay, you know, we can reduce your hours to 25 Do you really think things will, things will change, right? Because if you have, I agree with you, right? The humans need some kind of quantifiable data to change behavior, right? I agree with yeah. you. Um, so if we had everyone start having as a part of the doctor treatment, having a brain treatment, seeing all the, the insights that it could lead to change. However, where my mind goes is that we have data on obesity, right? We have all the data on obesity. Right. We're as fat as ever, right? We're, right. We're, we're still going with McDonald's all the time. So it's like, I hear you and I agree with you, but it's like, at what point is it actually going to cause much, much change? Well, I, th I think that it's very difficult. And I think going back to the obesity issue, it's the same thing where it's like, man, you walk through some of these airports, all there is to eat is just, Terrible. I can't, I can't eat airports. I try. It. Yeah, I can never eat there's airports. nothing there. Yeah, you never. have to go in to get. It's know, turkey. I, I talked about this yeah. on my video blog today. Like you have to get like the unsalted nuts if you want any sort of nutrient. Yeah, nuts and jerky. That's what I yeah, usually like. Yeah, exactly. Just... With the mental health thing, and the point that I was going to make is that because, so, unless you're an entrepreneur, unless you can control your own schedule, you are subjected to a serious amount of cognitive load that people can't escape, and because of that these psychiatric medications are becoming more and more prescribed. And I will tell you that SSRIs work. Like if you have an anxiety disorder, um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors will, for most people, as long as they're genetically- How does it uh, okay. work though? Like what, how does it work? How can someone with anxiety benefit from SSRI? The prevailing theory is that it increases more serotonin in your system. And serotonin, for the most part, makes you feel at peace and at ease. It also protects you from stimuli. So if I, let's say you have PTSD and I was going to show you a trigger, what happens is your nervous system goes into fight or flight mode. Your amygdala fires up, your muscle gets shunted from your digestive system to your muscles, your pupils dilate, 
The problem is that if you're in that state all the time, it wears you down. It's also not very conducive to getting good restorative sleep. So people can't sleep, their energy levels are down, they're worrying all the time, they're stuck in the default mode network all the time. What an SSRI will do over the course of a month or two will make you less subjective to that stimuli. So because you have a little bit more serotonin in your system, you're not put into fight or flight mode as easy. So it kind of protects you from the stimuli. Uh, And it also allows people to get better sleep because they're not so wound up. They haven't released all these um, cortisol and other hormones all day from just being stressed out from their daily life. Now, ideally, you remove them from the stressor, right? I, I think what is actually encouraging to me is how our economy is changing where <clears throat> it's like the self-employed economy, you know, gig economy is what they call it, right? Because people are, and, and also telework, I think is going to help. The more that people can control their schedules and understand what amount of work is healthy for them and how to experience that work and how to design their lives around that work, I think that that helps our mental health a lot. Because going into the urban environments nine to five and working at a desk under fluorescent lighting with a bunch of smart devices around us isn't working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's gonna take it's gonna take a while. I think that certain individuals that are self-sufficient, smart, and can get out of the matrix. And I noticed your quote <laughs> on the door there. It's like escaping the matrix, man. The way that things have been set up. It's good for overall human productivity up to this point, but with our technological advancements, I think that we're going to see huge shifts in the way that people are working. And a lot of that has to do with our mental health. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, I think it's going to take a while for for the general population to catch up, but I, I do see it with a lot of entrepreneurs and other people that are finally being able to take control of their own lives in the gig economy and, and create their weeks and their schedules in a way that's conducive to their mental health. It's happened with me. I mean, that's exactly what's happened with me over the last couple of years. I was in the Navy for, for eight years as a medical doctor, couldn't determine my own schedule. You know, I think was doing good work with, uh, veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and helping them, uh, you know, manage their schedules. But that would always be the frustrating thing is you have this person that, is mentally not doing well, but you can't really change your schedule at all. They're in the military. They have to be there. They have to do their thing. And I understand that's important from a productivity standpoint, but if, if we could be a little bit more flexible in a gig economy and allow there's, people, there's no space to heal. There's no I think, space. I think yeah. That's what's why we go to psychiatric medications that when I first, cause I went the matrix route of healing and I went to the more, um, not spiritual, but more holistic way of healing. And the, the non-holistic one was just like, okay, I'm going back to an Ivy League school in the fall. I'm an SRA student. I can't change. I have to have the same exact life in two months. And they hear that and they're like, yeah, you no, know, no shit. You know, we have to be able to do this in your age to make money, all this stuff. Um, here are these, this SSRI, an Adderall, and some Xanax. And I was like, oh, and it's going to fix me? Yeah, yeah, you'd be good. And I was good for a bit, but then I wasn't. Um, well, that Xanax and, is killer. But why I'm saying that is that like, when to, to actually heal, we need space, and it's impossible nowadays. Right? You can't be unemployed for two months. You can't miss right. school for for a semester to heal. Like in my experience, I'm so grateful that I'm you know privileged enough to have had you know a year to heal to actually just just be able to sit with like okay, I've been seriously traumatized and depressed for many years of my life. 
I need space to like let this because energy doesn't just like dissolve from the system, right? It has to dissipate. It has to slowly yes. leak out, and that takes time. That takes time. And we live in a in a value where you we live in an era where we don't make time for that, right? Or else you're dead. Literally, not dead, but like you can't feed your kids, you can't build your empire, or whatever men like to do. Or it's tough. So I, I just can't. What do you like? Do you agree with that statement? And do you think there's a new way out? Like, how do we actually go about? How can we start creating space for people to heal? Absolutely. Um... I mean, I experienced that in my own life, right? When I was getting out of the Navy, uh, I had a friend pass away, like my best friend drowned in 2021 or at the end of 2020. And that combined with me getting out of the military was extremely anxiety provoking. Mm -hmm. I had to go on Lexpro for the transition. Mm -hmm. Like I was waking up with just surges of adrenaline Mm -hmm. going through my body. And it made me realize that we're actually conditioned for this nine to five lifestyle and going to work every day it's very difficult to deprogram yourself because yeah. i noticed when i got out of the navy and i was just <laughs> sitting in my spare fourth bedroom you know uh working on my youtube content and being like wait i'm not seeing any patients today wait i don't have to go to any meetings today what the heck my nervous system was all over the place yeah. that's where doing some of the neurofeedback work helped me immensely as well and i was able to get off uh lexpro after being on it for about a year And part of what was really helpful, I don't know if you've read any of David Hawkins stuff, Power Versus Force, Um, man, such a great uh, writer, but there's a a book that he wrote called Letting Go. He's a psychiatrist and those books are phenomenal that anybody wants practical steps about this kind of stuff. But it was all about energy being stored up, trauma energy within your nervous system that builds up like a tea kettle. And you need some way of lighting it out. Mm -hmm. And he takes you through this technique where you actually sit and sit with the thing that's bothering you and allow it to come out through emotions. And a lot of times that's crying. A lot of times that's just letting the energy, the anxiety dissipate. But you need that space like you were talking about in order to do that work and allow that to happen. It was a very practical, beneficial way of, because I was, I had a wedding. I got married at that time. I was getting out of the Navy. We were moving to Las Vegas from Chicago. <clears throat> I was launching into my uh, YouTube career and uh, starting my neurofeedback coaching program. There was so much going on that I didn't have any time to process what had happened to my friend. And um, about six months after I got out of the Navy, finally some time opened up where I could start just allowing my nervous system to relax and let out all that pent up emotion. And only then was I able to come off the SSRI because there wasn't the trauma energy in me anymore. I had dissipated it and now there wasn't any reason to have the extra serotonin in my system protecting me from any triggers that would come along and activate my nervous system. So now that I was sleeping better and doing better, it really helped. But it's a whole process and finding that space for people that are um, you know, working so much is, is difficult. How do you understand depression? I think the common understanding of depression, when I was a patient for a psychiatrist, it was just like, you know, you probably inherited some uh, imbalance from your parents. And I was like, yeah, no problem for sure. And then I, and then through that belief, I, I'm very careful what I believe in. Through a belief of like, I believe that I have a, a deficiency in my brain, therefore I'm perpetually depressed. That belief was the most damaging thing I could ever believed. Believing yes. that I am, I am depressed perpetually 
was so damaging. And when the more I experienced life, the way, what I realized was that basically I was, I just hadn't dealt with things that were affected. I was depressed as like a signal, like my, something in my psyche or body was signaling to me, you need to change something. Like something has to shift. You have to, you know, shift your trauma from your system, eat new things, go on a different diet, have new friends, do a different career path. Like depression was, was I call it God, whatever I want to call it, was something telling me you failed. Not that you failed, but like, you're not doing this right. Like something has gone wrong, that you're, you're, something shifted. So that's my conception of it. How do you understand depression? Like, is it ever, how often is it that it's actually clinical? That someone is like perpetually depressed? Is that possible? Is it even possible for someone to be diagnosed, you are depressed forever? Well, I think that um, genetic depression with no way out is extremely rare. Like, I think what you're referring to is like this person's depressed and there's nothing that they could fix in their diet and their belief structure or in their yes. exercise patterns to yes. get and them no, out of no it. No matter how much running they do and weights and, and mindset yeah. changes and, and meditation and greens they eat, nothing will shift. Yeah, no, I think that's extremely rare. How rare? Um, like, oh, man. Like 2% of cases, 1% of cases? Of depression? Yeah. Probably less. Shit, but most people who are depressed believe that. I know. People I talked to, I'm not a psychiatrist, but you know, I know about this stuff. I taught friends from high school I talked to or I grew up, they're still depressed after five years. I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, I'm just depressed. You know, I have this thing that I'm just I have this thing in my brain. I'm like, I can't say anything because I don't want to like yeah. make change them, but it's like I, it's so funny to hear how rare it is because most people who are depressed believe they're part of that rarity. Yes. And it's uh it's frustrating to work with as a psychiatrist as well. Because uh, I'll have patients that switch from medication to medication to medication. They're always looking for that next medication that's going to fix with wrong with them. And at, at a certain point, I have to start offending them, basically, and really putting their feet to the fire and be like, what are you eating? Oh, man, how much it, sleep it, you, are you getting? You don't understand. Are you exercising? You don't understand how much that hits my heart. I get borderline emotional just because one psychiatrist doing that, to me, is beautiful. Because just from like a, I almost died. Like I was severely suicidal because of the medication, right? Because of the, I'm, I'm diagnosed bipolar, but I don't know what that means. I still, I still don't know what that means. <laughs> but like, yeah, I was probably these medications that fucked with it apparently. And I was seriously suicidal for years of my life just because one doctor didn't ask me those things. Yeah. Right. And it's most of them. So just, just to you, heart to heart, man to man, like, thank you for just, for just being that way. Me yeah. Doctor, no, I'm doing that. I appreciate that. And that's why I'm so passionate about the devices. You know, as much as I go down the technological, uh, I get all excited about the tech. And I think that's where I lose people sometimes. But really, at the end of the day, it's like getting data about how your brain's operating. And I think that the more that we do that, the more that we are going to realize that these seed oils, these fried foods, these... um, food sources, the nutrients in the food, the quality of your sleep, how much exercise you're getting is seriously affecting people's brain health. And that is leading to higher anxiety levels. Um, You know, there's different types of depression. Even in the DSM, there's melancholic depression where you you just don't feel like getting out of bed in the morning and have no motivation. But there's the other type of depression, which is much more common, which is it's more anxiety fueled. You have the amygdala firing up. And because of that, people get in their heads. They get in that default mode network and they just think terrible thoughts about themselves all day, every day. And as you can imagine, that can be very depressing. If you don't feel good 
or balanced because of the food that you've been eating or the amount of sleep that you've been getting or the exercise or your work structure, that's going to send you into that fight or flight mode. Or your nervous system, your nervous system perpetually burned out. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, I, I think this generation's really waking up to, uh, the effects of alcohol as well. And I think that this is something that is becoming more and more talked about, uh, at least online and a lot of podcasts I've been listening to is what happens is people work all week. They're exhausted. Friday night comes up. I'm going to have a drink to relax. Yeah. The alcohol kind of chills you out and makes you a little giggly and enjoy the evening with your loved one. But what happens your sleep that night is terrible. Then you're waking up on Saturday with a hangover. And not only do you have the toxic byproducts from alcohol that's actually causing physical inflammation to your nervous system, but you didn't get good sleep. So all the damage that you did during the week, during the the nine to five hard work week, none of it was repaired last night. In fact, you made it worse with the alcohol intake. And I think that there's studies coming out right now that show that alcohol is a lot more carcinogenic than we thought, leads to a lot more cancers that... um, the effects from the toxic byproducts, especially as you reach your late twenties and even, uh, and especially in your thirties, it's affecting you all week. Even if you're just a weekend drinker, it's really affecting your performance all week. And people wonder why they're so foggy. They can't focus. They're not feeling well. And the only thing to alleviate that is more alcohol at the end of the next week. It's like, um, Alex Becker talked about this on his channel. I don't know if you follow him, but his analogy. And this is referring to a work that was done by Alan Carr, How to Stop Drinking Without Willpower, which is an excellent uh, book. He has a series of books on this, is alcohol is the jailer. It put you in jail in the first place. It made you not feel well all week. You thought it was because you hated your job. That's part of it. But because you drank, you didn't feel well all week. And just at the last bit of the week, like the Thursday or Friday, when you're getting excited for the weekend again, you do it again. Put yourself in jail again. That's one of the things that I did in the last three months. I know you and I were talking about this a little bit before, but I can't believe my energy levels. When I stopped drinking, and I was drinking like twice a month, at most three times a month. It'll, you know, it'll be the evening and usually I'd be like winding down exhausted, but I'm just like exhilarated. I'm like, okay, what else can I get done by the end of the day? You know, playing with my daughter, doing different things around the house, getting better sleep. And uh, it's just amazing when you cut alcohol out, how much that can help. One of the main reasons, like I think there's an addiction piece of alcohol or there's genuine addicts who have to stop. But the main reason people don't stop is because they're too scared of not fitting in. That, yes. You know, this insane culture likes to, to, likes to engage in socialization or base it around alcohol, right? The alcohol is a key ingredient in social interaction, which to me is just wild. Like no one ever sits back and is like, the way we socialize as human beings is through a, a potent drug that can kill us and cause us to be aggressive and brings it the worst human traits. We choose to socialize around that. And for me, once I learned that and I was like, I kind of got disillusioned by it, or I was like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Then I stopped. Well, now, now that I can go to a restaurant or I don't party that much, but a club or something and friends are drinking, I'm just like, I really don't give a fuck. Like, I have no desire at all to just drink for just to fit in. What, what, what am I fitting into? 
Yeah. That's, I'm fitting into a fucking insane system that depends social interaction off alcohol, right? If you can only make friends based on, if you only, sorry, if you can only base your friendships around alcohol, the only way you can connect with someone through alcohol, it's not a good connection. Yeah. It's not a friend worth having, right? If you can't sit down with someone sober, engage in conversation and stimulating, they're not your friend, right? Like we can't base our interactions off of a drug that, that's fucking us up. So I noticed that in me too. Like when I think of drinking alcohol now, I get like actually the emotion of disgust in my body, which yeah. is helpful because I'm like, why am I pouring that poison down? Yeah, that's what it should be. What, what do you think was the turning point for you? How did you eventually get to that point with alcohol? Well, I was an alcoholic. Um, so it reached a point where I was addicted to, so I was drinking on top of Klonopin, Adderall. Um, yeah, I was drinking on top of that. I reached a point where I was like, I almost died multiple times. Oh, my heart was just like, like slowly fucking beating. So I reached a point where I was like, I should have been dead multiple times. And thinking in my mind, I call it spiritual intervention, divine intervention, but it was like, I'm going to die if I don't stop. So that was like the addiction piece. And then once it hit like a year or two, and I do believe that addiction isn't permanent. I think that it's, it's a coping mechanism for trauma. Once the trauma was released, I wasn't addicted to the alcohol. So I drink. But just like I didn't like I drink because I was at a party or I was with a girl. I was trying to seduce her and press and she was drinking. And I reached a point where I was like, the only reason I'm still doing this is to fit in. Yeah. And then I realized like, but fitting in then means I'm hungover. My capacity for intellectual engagement is diminished. My, my life force to be purposeful in what I want to do in my life gets diminished. The only upside is 10 minutes of pleasure. And it's not even that good, right? It's like right. a little bit. Exactly. And I have a headache. Like, fuck it. Just, I, 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 I complete, like I had a, a college professor of mine is a neuroscientist. I had him on and his, his way of habit, uh, talking about habits, he studied it, which is, I go back to my mind, is like in your body, feeling two paths before a drink, right? One path is like no drink, wake up fresh with my kids, eat breakfast, my day's good. And then, then go even further, a year, a year of that behavior versus another path what's my morning like hungover? How am I treating my, my, my wife, my kids? How am I going with my purpose? A year on the line. And a year, in the, a year down the line, what kind of person am I with alcohol? And you feel that in your body and there's no choice. Once you feel viscerally the, the comparison of both, it just becomes like learned. I love that. Yeah. Rob Deerdeck talks a lot about that where it just reverberates through every aspect of your life. And if you look down the long term, it's just not worth it. Um. I think the fitting in part is interesting because I I think that one thing that I've realized in the last year or two of being a YouTuber and an entrepreneur and not working in a hospital anymore is like, I'm weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am no longer like, like most people that go to work every, every day during the week. And it's it's uh, very empowering, a little scary, but also it's like you have to come to terms with like this identity that, yeah, I don't fit in as well as I used to. And I think that actually made it easier to quit alcohol because like, I'm like, man, I have so much work to do and my potential I feel like is huge because I have big goals and, you know, got some momentum. Do you think that that would help with people too, is having big goals and momentum and just taking into account like how successful they will be in their endeavors if they stop taking sure. that's alcohol? What, that's what stopped me. Yeah. On one level, it's like, yes, you know, having access life force is important for your purpose, for sure. Like feeling, feeling good makes you good at what you do. I, I believe that. Like my, my prime purpose is to, is to be healthy 
and feel good and everything goes on top of that. But deeper than that, like, again, the alcohol, this need to feed it, fit in is that your weirdness is what, sorry, your weirdness is your gift. Mm-hmm. Your weirdness is your gift, right? Like what makes you, you and separate, if you're an entrepreneur, is what makes you get gold, right? Like yeah. if, if you are just like everyone else, you'll get the same results as everyone else, period. Exactly. If you find your weirdness, find your individual identity, you get to carve out your own path. And that means, yeah, you're going to miss some parties and not get drunk with your friends, but it's essential. So for sure, backing up what you say, you, you, you need to believe that the alcohol is going to benefit you, not only honoring your weirdness and be okay with it, um, but also having a goal big enough to sacrifice, being okay with sacrificing alcohol. Um, yeah. I mean, I find it going even further than that lately. I've really been trying to avoid uh, fried foods and seed oils. This doesn't ask you, man. Like, that's, I've been like, it's crazy. I saw Rolling Stone call it, like a, there's an article, literally an article being like this new right wing conspiracy theory that seed oils are bad for you. I'm just like, I'm not even right wing, but just like, what the, what the fuck? Like, the, like, I've been so adamant to people about the, the seed oil stuff. Um, just because my own personal story, like when I'd eat seed oils, I, I felt, I felt something going wrong. I'd eat fried food. Yes. My stomach would be inflamed. It'd be bloated. My brain would feel slow. And I was like, what the hell's going on here? And I didn't see the scientific side of things. I just believed it in my body. And I'd tell my friends and family, and they're like, that's some right-wing Joe Rogan shit. And I'm like, no, like it's my experience. So to shut, shut them all up, have you come across any scientific evidence that this is actually affecting you? Well, from a personal experience, what happened is when I pulled off no more alcohol, and I've been a no sugar sweets guy for a long time as well. Intermittent fasting. I fast 20 hours a day. I only have a four hour eating window. Doing all these things and just shedding the layers of toxicity got me to a point, I think, where it was so obvious to me when I ate something that was either packaged, had canola oil or rapeseed oil in it or fried, how foggy I was the next day. It was so noticeable because one day I would be just 100% sharp, like with it, creative, enthusiastic, all this energy, just in a good mood. And then I would eat some kind of packaged food. And it's such a shame too. How many of these foods have this stuff in it? I went into our pantry, all of it. it. I I used to love these little granola bars called Bobo's. Those were like my my favorite little treat after dinner and first thing you know like became aware of seed oils first thing you look canola oil it's like the first ingredient so definitely the fogginess um you know as far as the scientific literature goes i've been meaning to make a youtube video on this i'm going to dive in a lot more pretty soon here on the literature behind it there's some really good youtube videos out there i think that um Andrew Saladino's work is pretty interesting. Is uh, kind of like the carnivore diet. Paul Saladino. Pa- yeah, sorry, Paul Saladino. Yeah, yeah. That's a diet I follow. I, I yeah. mostly meat and fruit. Yeah. yeah, so he he, you know, that's a good resource for him going through some of the science science that's been done. But <clears throat> I mean, I think that it causes inflammation in the central nervous system and throughout the entire body. And I think that the inflammation is like the number one thing that if you can avoid, you're going to feel really well. The- I saw something again. I'm, this is not my world at all. I'm just yeah. I read a lot. I'm just trying to remember what I've read. But something along the lines of like, there's a isn't there a part of is it, is it membranes? A part of your brain that's like made of fat. Yeah, is it, that's like connecting the lipid bilayer, whatever around. it's called. Like it, yeah. it's it, it's created by the fat you eat. Oh, the 
the myelin sheaths around the neurons. I have no yeah. idea. Something in the neuron, like something that communicates whatever part that is, is made up of fat. Yes. And it's dependent on the quality of fat you eat. So it's like if you eat shitty fats, yeah. like seed oil is the, the effects, efficacy of it isn't as strong as your fat sources are like high quality olive oil, um, right. good butter and, and you know. Yeah, oil. I mean, apparently we can't digest these seed oils properly and it's causing inflammation. And you're 100% correct, you know, just like these electrical wires in the studio, they have the rubber or plastic around the, the wires themselves that improves the electricity going through the, the wire. And uh, neurons of the brain have the same thing. It's the axon, it's the cell body, it's uh, wrapped by a myelin sheath that is, that is fatty. And uh, yeah, I've been becoming just increasingly paranoid about what I eat because it's kind of like the alcohol thing where you realize... Instead of me just having this plate of fries affecting me today and tomorrow, it might actually be affecting me all month, which sucks. No, I don't want to eat like a plate of fries. Like fries, yeah, they're good, but like, are they like worth a full you, month of fogginess? You can you know? still have fries. You can still like bake them, use like olive right. oil or, you know, like you can still have good them. Good point. You know, you yeah. don't have to like, fr- these foods aren't limited to just like KFC and McDonald's. You can yeah. now get a baking sheet, cut up some sweet potatoes or potatoes, put some olive oil on it and it's, it's good enough. Well, I'm hoping that, and I think that they will, the food companies are going to catch on because I know a lot of There's people. There's no way. There's no way. I'm, I'm, but don't you I'm, think I'm that... much more pessimistic than you. I can tell from this conversation. Yeah. But like they profit off this shit. Like they, they profit off of, of, of like con- convenience packaging, right? Like they want to save time and make it as cheap as possible for profits. We live in the most capitalistic country in the world, which yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of, right? But it's like, they're only focused on maximizing, maximizing profits. And there are laws in the US other countries don't have that allow them to like cheat us on ingredients to, to get the product out faster and save on money, right? Like avocado, olive oil, butter is more expensive to create. These little packaged things have very cheap food that makes it so easy to be profitable. So unless I mean, the system changes, it's like it's hard to expect food companies to create like, like Doritos or Tostitos to create yeah. like healthier stuff. No, I, I think that there always will be junk food and it's going to, you know, go to the lowest bidder. But I just hope that enough of, because yes, the companies do produce the food, but the consumer buys the food. So if the consumer buying habits change, that's the argument, right? Are there yeah. enough people that don't want this seed oil crap in their food to band together and they're buying purchasing power to influence is there, is there new companies? Though? Like people really don't give a fuck. That's the question, yeah. I think it, it comes down to, I think this is like the base level, how much awareness you have in your system. And I mean that in two levels, right? I think that on one level, you need self-awareness first for like being a decent human being, right? You don't want to be checked out all the time on like an NPC. On a deeper level, like, you need to be aware how you feel. Yeah. Like truly. Like it's like the, even though it's, it's tough and can make you neurotic in many ways, you need to pay attention how you feel when you, after you eat something or, or read something or, or, or with someone, right? Like you and I are the way we are because we ate McDonald's fries or, you know, Doritos and felt awful, right? But people are too, I don't know what's going on. They're too protected in their mind or they just don't want to go there. They don't feel it. Like they just they don't feel the difference. In my opinion, they already feel awful. Okay. They don't know what feeling good feels like. Okay. Because of all the layers that they're already under, they're drinking alcohol on the weekends, they're working, uh, you know, uh, they're overworking themselves, uh, they're eating all these crappy foods, they're overweight. They they don't know what feeling good feels like as an adult. So they, baseline metric for like feeling is just bad. Yeah, it's like 
what I went through, I had to peel back the layers of nonsense before I could even tell that seed oils were affecting me. So if you have all these layers already, how are they going to tell? They can't tell. I think that self-awareness and education is part of it. You know, meditating and I think meditate, I don't know about you, but I think meditation is kind of like the canary in the coal mine, you know, because it's such a unique state of mind. It's very sensitive to uh, influences. So I like meditation in that fact is like, you know, if I eat seed oils or drink alcohol the day before, I'm probably not going to have a very good meditation session. So I think that's part of it is building self-awareness through those types of uh, self-awareness practices. But honestly, I think like a bigger factor is probably that they've never felt good before in their adult lives. They haven't felt good levels of energy since they were teenagers or even earlier. And so what, what breaks that, them then? What can lead them to becoming aware they don't feel good? That's where my awareness thought came in is like, you have to be aware that you're not feeling good. How does one go about that? How can someone start feeling into that? How can someone gain consciousness of the fact that they are not feeling good? Mm-hmm. Like, where does it start? For someone to be listening, they're like, I don't know if I'm feeling good or bad. Like, where does one even begin in that journey of saying like, okay, I'm not feeling great? I think that's a very complex question. I think that most people don't feel good. Yeah. And if they are not feeling like they're on their personal path to self-actualization, that things are holding them back. Like one of the most common questions I get is like, how can I be more motivated? Like motivation is a constant issue for people. It's, it's, it's bullshit though. It's an illusion. I don't understand it, to be honest. Well, I understand it from a psychiatric perspective, but like for me- I'm motivated maybe 5% of the time. Okay. So you're on that side of the spectrum where you you don't feel like you're very motivated a lot of the time? No. Like I I just learned that it doesn't matter if I'm motivated or not. Right. You get the work done. If I want to create a life for myself, like I I, I just have to do it. If motivation comes, great. I'll use it. But if not, like I have to do it anyway. I just learned to not depend on it. It's not like a thing I depend on. Gotcha. I think we need more words in our English language, honestly, to describe motivation. Because what you're describing is different than, because I agree, I agree with you. If, if you were to frame the word motivation in that way. I mean, the feeling of it. Like yes. Feeling like a desire to do something, to do the thing you want to do. To me, it's motivation. It's feeling, let's say you want to work out. So you say the, the plan is to work out and your whole body is like juiced up to work out or you like, you like your whole body's ready to work out. Mm-hmm. That is motivation. Or like mm-hmm. you feel like so aligned with it that you're going you're gonna to do it. But what's, at, what's your conception? Well, at some point you've, so you only have a, a certain amount of glucose brain juice per day to make decisions and create habits. So I think that we only have so much motivation per day. And if you've utilized that motivation over the course of years, you've built good habits, like what James Clear talks about in Atomic Habits. Great book as well. So although you only feel motivated five to 10% of the time, you've used that motivation, what little motivation you had every day to build good habits to get to where you're at now. You've got this awesome podcast studio, um, you know, building your audience, uh, becoming a self-actualized person, working on yourself. These are things that most people are not doing. 
So what's happening to that 5 to 10% of motivation? There's something blocking them from taking action on that motivation. And what I'm saying is it's, it's say I have friends who identify as depressed. What I hear you, what I'm trying to say is that they need the somatic feeling of motivation. They need to feel like the up-level energy, the desire yeah. to do something, right? Let's say they're a student and they, ha- and they, have, to, they have an essay assignment. For them to write the essay or to do something like that, they need to feel the motivation to do the essay, like the bodily sensation to do it. Yeah. What I'm arguing is that like for anyone who, 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 who isn't depressed, like, like me or other people, I think the, the result of action makes you happy. Like feel like you're doing things to add to your, yourself, create the happiness, right? So like I know that. My, my, I know that the results create a positive feeling in me. Like progress creates a good feeling. Yes. That's my metric. But like I realize that like if I only depend on the feeling, it's, it's like non-permanent to create the action that causes the result, I'm fucked. Because I only come sometimes. And I've learned that, okay, I just have to do the things every day no matter how I feel because I know that the result of having, having done the workout, having written the thing, having done the podcast, yeah. the result of that added up makes me feel progress. Yes. I think we're on the same page. We're kind of... It's different language. It, it, it's difficult, right? Because yeah, it's like kind of chicken before the egg and that's why... Um, progress habits and momentum are so important. It's like momentum is, uh, is, is really helpful because I think that you and me at, at this point compared to people that are just starting out with their own personal life missions, there's been a develop, there's been a, a level of habit creation as well as a subconscious understanding that action is going to create uh, good vibes, if you will. And I think that what you're describing is that your friends haven't made that subconscious connection yet. They're looking for that motivation, that energy, that positive reward before they even start the action. And that's why they're not getting the feedback that they need to make any progress. That's what it is, yeah. Which most people deal with, honestly. Like, again, whenever I talk to someone, it's the same question you get as I don't feel motivated. Yeah. It's it's always that anyone who struggles with depression... It's just that, that question, I don't feel motivated. Right. So, I mean, coming full circle back to your original question, right? Why are people not feeling good? I do think that there's enough brain juice per day to get started. But if you feel if you don't feel well, like I think back to when I'd be hungover. <laughs> Was I really doing much that day? I, I would do a couple of things, but I wasn't very motivated to do that. I didn't have the brain juice. I didn't have the creativity. I didn't have the vision to start the process of the day. Maybe I had enough momentum from the weeks, months, years behind me to actually get something done. But if you start from scratch, you need that initial boost. And if people's biology is all effed up from eating terrible foods and not taking care of themselves, then... How are they going to get started, especially if they're getting up there a little bit in age? And by that, I mean, you know, most people consider starting your career to be around in your early 20s or so. And although I am a full believer that people completely transform themselves, change their whole life and achieve anything that they want to achieve, even starting in their late 30s. It's going to be more difficult just because your uh, brain juice isn't what it used to be. You've already kind of um, 
had bad habits established, you, you, and then if you, if you're not taking care of yourself, it can be all that much more difficult. Yeah. I agree. To close this all off, um, back on what you say is that it's really important to start your day correctly. Like you're saying, right? Like if, it, like, when I started my day, just burning dopamine on social media, scrolling, yes, complaining, burning my energy incorrectly, the whole day would just, just tank. Right. But when I kind of do things that build up that positive sensation or feeling like an ice bath, meditating, you're playing that game, like building this foundation of a positive life force and chi, and then going from that, that, that place, it's so much more powerful than like doing what you can to destroy it and then trying to build it back up after. I've noticed that that's the same strategy for you, like building up this like positive momentum or life force initiating the day to then go the day with versus just like destroying it and then going from that place. Yeah, I love that explanation you just gave with the chi, the energy force, the life force moving in that direction. It almost seems like a shame to reduce it to a scientific biological level, but no, you go uh, for it. That's what you're here to do. Yeah, I, I know, right? Yeah. Why I'm loving this podcast is I think one of the things I I need to work on myself is that I explain things from a very like new age spiritual thing. I, cause I I I do feel happy. I do feel these things. Like I've I've learned it through different shamans and Buddhist stuff. Like I've done it that way, but. Most people can't identify with that. So when you're coming in with your perspective, it's like very, it's beautiful because it's like, okay, there's something to what I'm saying, you know, there's, yeah. there's some validity to, to what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I mean, the most obvious example is if you uh, go into fight or flight mode early in the day, you're going to have all this release of adrenaline and catecholamines and cortisol in your bloodstream that's going to affect you all day. Like those chemicals are going to linger and cause you not to be as effective for the rest of the day until you've had that ability to reset at night through sleep and start the next day. Um, that's kind of the obvious bodily example, but I think that it's true with the brain too, is if you get in certain modes, like, um, you know, if you've been, uh, working on things and you're being really creative and you've activated that brain circuitry, you're going to stay in that mode for longer than if you started your day, uh, doom scrolling or, uh, playing video games or just getting stimulation because now your brain's in receiving mode and you're, it's going to be more difficult to switch into creative productivity mode uh, later in the day. So I think that neurobiologically, there's absolutely, um, you know, scientific underpinnings there about how you start your day with your morning routine and how do you keep that momentum going. That's why I like to fast for 20 hours a day. Cause I know as soon as I eat, I'm kind of in chill mode, you know, it yeah, kind of sure. clouds my brain. So I've been, um, you know, not eating breakfast or lunch and then just consuming all my calories between 4 and 8 p.m. Because that's what I find. I'm sharper all day and then I go into rest and relaxation digestion mode and it's more conducive to a productive day if I fast all day. So um, there's a lot of biological and neuroscience underpinnings to all this stuff that we're talking about. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for giving that that validity right i think that, that that class i took in college started me with the curiosity of having conversations like this right because it was very much like you know my, my teacher was like a legitimately like, trained buddhist but he was a neuroscientist and there was legitimate evidence towards like what ancient civilizations and and, and healed people have been talking about with legitimate scientific evidence so just cool to have this back and forth and thank you so much for coming on sharing your side of the aisle and being patient with me and my lack of understanding um and if you have anything to to shout out and your youtube page like what, what is it you're, are you working on now that people can tune into uh the youtube channel called uh tech for psych is uh my main youtube channel and i talk about 
all the brain devices that I discussed today. I'm really excited. We're branching out a little bit into more um, other areas. I'd like to talk more about uh, different metrics like heart rate variability and blood glucose levels and a lot of other body monitoring that applies to mental health. So I used to be very just focused on the brain data itself, but as we discussed today, there's so much that influences your mind from your body and um, more of a health and longevity perspective. So I'm getting testosterone tests. I'm getting my uh, epigenetics tested through uh, understanding telomere length. I'm going through all these different uh, diet plans and measuring my progress. So trying to turn it into more video blog type style so that people will be entertained a little bit more through edutainment. And uh, I'm really excited about it. But thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Lucas. Course, it's been a pleasure. Yes, sir. Of course. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast as well as rate and review. Thank you for listening.